Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. Philippians chapter 3 this morning, we will be in verse 10 and verse 11. Uh, in a moment, we're going to back up and read from verse 7, but verses 10 and 11 will be our main text this morning. I want to tell you of a story, um, well, really of a place I found myself in. Jamie and I uh, found ourselves in the summer of 2019, uh, standing right smack dab in the middle of the White House in Washington, D.C. And uh, it was a surreal moment. We were in rooms that we had only ever before seen on TV, and now we find ourselves standing there. Uh, it was a months-long process to get to that point. Uh, lots of vetting, lots of background checks, lots of very precise instructions on the time and the place to be and what was allowed to bring in the building and how to get in the building and all of those sorts of things. But once we finally got in, uh, we were there. We had entered through the East Wing. We had walked through this basement-like hallway. We looked at the movie theater that was in place at the time. We got to see storage rooms. We got to see priceless China. We made our way up a marble flight of steps onto the main state floor. And though we weren't allowed in every room, we were allowed in a lot of rooms. Uh, the blue room, the green room, the east room. Uh, some of you, that means nothing to you. To me, that actually means a lot. Uh, this historical building we're getting to walk through. Exquisite paintings. Amazing furniture. A grand design in, in every square inch of this building. The doorknobs are not ordinary doorknobs. They're engraved with uh, intricate designs. Crown molding, intricate. It's beautiful. After we make our way through this building, we finally end up walking out the front door of the White House, down the front steps, and out the front gate. And as quickly as it began, it seemed to be over. And I had half a mind to turn around and go back and try to go back through. But the security presence is overwhelming. You didn't really want to linger too long for just fear of suspicion. Every room contained Secret Service agents. They were watching us from every nook and cranny, even places I'm sure we weren't aware of. It was a little bit unnerving. That was one of those special moments in life that frankly I don't think about every day, not even every month. But it's still special. But if you were to ask me today, standing here, based on the fact that I've been in that building, if I was an expert on the White House, I would say not by a long shot. I've been in the building, and I've seen the building. I've touched things in the building, things I probably shouldn't have. I touched walls, I touched the doorknobs, I breathed its air. But I am by no means an expert on the building. There were more rooms than I could have spent an entire day exploring. 
And there were more things going on behind the scenes in that building than I will ever know about. Compared to everything that was available in that location, I just was exposed to a very little, little portion of it. I tell you that story to try to illustrate what I think most, or at least a lot of professing Christians do when they think of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Compared to what's available to them, they only enjoy a very little portion of it. In fact, compared to what's available to them, they're only looking at the Lord. And they may even dabble in the things of the Lord. They, they may dabble in ministry in the name of the Lord. But by no means would they call themselves experts on the Lord. Their relationship with Christ is at best minimal and likely superficial. And though they have full access to Christ Himself, they spend little effort exploring all the secret places and secret spaces of the Lord. Even worse than that is the fact that I think there are Christians who are content with the little exposure to Christ that they have. That truth be told, if we were to see into their hearts, if they were to look into their hearts, they would discover that, in all honesty, they don't want more of Jesus. More of Jesus scares them. More of Jesus requires sacrifice. More of Jesus would change them and change their pleasures and change their hobbies and maybe change their friends. Maybe even change how they relate to their family. And so they just dabble with a little of Jesus. Enough to say they've been in the building, but not enough to say they really know what's going on. Today's text addresses that very concern, that very issue. We find the perspective of a Christian as he continues to think about how he relates to Christ. Paul comes down into verse 10 and he says, I'm not content with the little. I want as much as I can have. Like a wilted plant soaking up the water before it soaks into the soil. Paul yearns for more of Christ. Look with me in verse 7 and let's read down through verse 11. He's recounting in a biographical way his forsaking of his former life in verses 5 and 6 because he's encountered a greater treasure, namely Jesus Christ. And he makes that transition in verse 7 and he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings 
becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Over and over again in these verses, Paul has been highlighting his desire to know Christ. It's a, a beautiful passage that shows the, the, the very center of his life is Christ Himself. And he's done that in a variety of ways. Verse 7, when he references counting everything as lost for the sake of Christ, that's a, a general way of talking about wanting to know Christ or possess Christ. Verse 8, he's explicit. He talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He also says in verse 8, he wants to gain Christ. In verse 9, he says he wants to be found in Christ. These are all general terms to refer to his very deep desire to know Christ on a personal, intimate level. It's safe to say that for the Apostle, knowing Jesus was the longing of his heart. The very reason for his breath. In fact, he says in chapter 1, verse 21, to, to me to live is Christ. My heart beats for Christ. My mind thinks of Christ. My body moves for Christ. And then yet again, as we come to verse 10, he says, I do all of this that I may know Him. It's a forward thought by the time we come to verse 10. It's a forward thinking kind of know Him. A futuristic kind of know Him. The, the previous references, like verse 7, were past tense. Verse 8 was present tense. Verse 9, in the end of verse 8, were still future tense. And verse 10 is even more future tense. I'm, I'm looking forward to knowing more of Christ. And it comes right on the heels of, of verse 9, specifically talking about possessing the righteousness of Christ. In other words, he says, righteousness is the requirement to be with God. And by the way, my own righteousness proved to be inadequate. I need the righteousness of another. I need the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what he says. And he says, I want that righteousness for two reasons. One, because it's a declared righteousness. It legally justifies me before God. It determines my right standing with God. We know what happens when we're saved, when we're converted by the grace of God. Our guilt is removed and we are declared righteous by the merit and work of Christ alone. The Bible tells us we are seen by the Father as if being in the Son. God loves sinners enough that He sent His Son to perfectly obey the law on their behalf. Perfectly obey God on their behalf. Then die for their penalty of sin and resurrect from the dead so that they may have eternal life in Him. Our righteousness in Christ is a declared righteousness that declares us right in our standing with God. But there's also applied, an applied righteousness. See, God doesn't just declare us one thing and then leave us alone. He declares us one thing and then makes us that thing. In this, this case, it's righteous. He doesn't just declare us righteous before Him in terms of a right standing. He applies righteousness to us so that we might have a right relationship with Him. 
so that our hearts might be conformed to the heart of God Himself, so that our morals, our attitudes, our minds, our pleasures, our desires, our motives, all of these things might be conformed to God Himself, that we would be righteous like God. This is this is what we call sanctification. Not only does God declare us righteous and, and thus justified, right with Him in a legal sense, He makes us righteous through Christ so that we can have a proper, right, joyful, flourishing, intimate, experiential, personal relationship with Him. In other words, He, he doesn't just declare you righteous so that you can be in heaven. He makes you righteous so that you can have a personal relationship with Him. That's what Paul seems to have in mind here in verse 10 and, 10 and 11. He writes about the righteousness of God in verse 9. Knowing that he's going to get to verse 10. And knowing that he's going to get to verse 11. He connects the two with this reasoning word, this purpose word, that. It could be so that. It could be because. In other words, he's saying, I want the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Because I want to know Christ. That's the first point of verse 10. He wants to know Christ. And righteousness, the righteousness through faith, gets him Christ. It's interesting that he uses this language, know Christ, because of all people, Paul, more than most, knew about Christ. He's the very teacher of Christ. He teaches on such a level and has an understanding of Christ on such a level that Peter confesses in, in 2 Peter 3.16 that his writings are hard to understand. He wrote the vast majority of the letters in the New Testament. And he writes in such a way that clearly depicts a unique sort of understanding about Christ. He commands a knowledge. He commands even a practice that we could even say with all honesty is unrivaled in most of human history. Not that it's a competition, thank the Lord. So what does he mean then when he says, I want to be righteous so that I can know Jesus? It almost, it almost presents a hopelessness. If Paul can't know Christ, then who can? If Paul's ignorant about Jesus, then is it even possible for anybody to know Jesus? Now, on one sense, Paul is perfectly right in claiming that he doesn't know much about Christ. We've talked about this. It's because Christ is infinite, right? He's surpassing. That's the word used in the text. He's transcendent. As transcendent as God Himself. The Bible describes Him in language like this. Alpha and Omega. Beginning and the end. As equal with God. John chapter 5. As in the beginning with God. John chapter 1. 
We know Him to exist like God exists, which means He's infinite in His being. He's infinite in His knowledge. He's infinite in His attributes, unbound by time, unbound by creation, transcending all of these things. The Bible tells us He exists in unapproachable light. That He is far above all rule and authority. Even that He is undiscoverable. Meaning that if He did not choose to reveal Himself, He would not be found. Paul in, in Romans 11 highlights this very issue. He says in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. This is a God that is not like us at the very core of who He is. He is an infinite God. And finite human understanding, even if it were unstained by sin, could not dare to presume to know Him. You realize, don't you? I hope you do. That whatever you know about Christ that is true, you know based out of pure grace from God. It's a very true and a very real fact for Paul to confess. It's perfectly acceptable for Paul to confess a lack of knowledge about Christ because Christ is absolutely infinite. Now, let me provide an asterisk here. That is not to say He's not knowable. By His grace, He is knowable. But not comprehensively. It is to say that He is, though knowable, greater than our minds can even begin to fathom. But that's not what Paul's getting at in verse 10. In one sense, it could be Acceptable for him to say that. I want to know more of Christ because Christ is infinite and there's more to be known. But that's, the, that's not the no that he's talking about. Though it's a benefit of righteous conduct to know more of Christ, to be able to identify with Him more, Paul's confessing in verse 10 that he wants the righteousness of God that depends on faith so that he can know Christ personally, intimately, and experientially. Again, remember, righteousness is declared over us so that we have a right legal standing before God. It's also enabled in us by the work of the Spirit so that we might enjoy a proper, even daily walk with Jesus. Sin in our lives, though it will never rob us of our security in Christ, our salvation, does hinder our intimacy with Christ. So the converse of that is true. Righteous, godly conduct and behavior enables our intimacy with Christ to flourish. 
Paul says, I want this righteousness declared and applied so that I may know Jesus. That each step with the Lord is a step of intimacy. Each encounter with the Lord is real and personal. There's a tendency among Christians, it's really among all people, but Christians specifically that I want to pick on. There's a tendency to overcommit to certain aspects of the Christian faith to the neglect of other aspects of the Christian faith. So for instance, one might be so dedicated to to studying the Scriptures that they neglect evangelism. Or one may be so dedicated to evangelism that they neglect thorough study of the Scriptures. Or one may be so dedicated to doing good in the world in the name of Christ that they actually forget to talk about Christ. Certainly, there are many areas we might talk about where that is that principle is true. We run to all sorts of extremes to the neglect of the whole or of the balanced Christian walk. But this is certainly and probably most seriously true when it comes to Knowing Christ. I'm afraid that it's true more often than we want to admit that people who know a lot about Christ, they can tell you a lot about Christ, they can recite a lot about Christ, they've read a lot about Christ, actually don't really know Christ. And if they do, they don't know Him very well. You see, to to study the Scriptures, to articulate Christian positions, to to be good at debating or defending the faith, to understand theological complexities, to be able to recite the Nicene Creed in response to Arianism does not mean one knows Christ. There is a world of difference, church, between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ. And quite frankly, especially in our context, it is very easy to know about Christ. And truth be told, very difficult to know Christ. It's easy to know about Christ because we live in an age where God has blessed us, where we have access to a a plethora of information sources. Any moment of any day, you're able to pick up some piece of technology or some printed book that's now affordable sitting at your home or even the printed Bible in your home itself and read about Christ constantly. And people can tell you good sounding arguments. They can articulate good speeches about Christ. Convey in a compelling way good information about Christ. That doesn't mean you know Christ. And as I said, I would say it's even very difficult to know Christ because it requires things like humility, confession, forfeiting pride, being honest about your secret sin.
You see, it's easy to swing to the extremes. To, to mix up what is true and what is a fallacy. To lean to the extreme and believe that my Christian intellect and my Christian knowledge must mean my heart is right with Christ. I've debated on whether or not I want to go to this next portion in my notes, but I think I have some prerogative to be frank and forthright. Even our own church isn't immune to the extremes, to the neglect of other things. I think it's the work of a good shepherd to be observing and examining and prayerfully considering a church's weaknesses and its strengths. And how it can course correct. And truth be told church. We're not immune to overemphasizing. Certain aspects of Christianity. Good aspects of the Christian faith. To the neglect of equally good aspects of the Christian faith. What if we have. For instance. The reverence part of worship down but we lack tremendously in the joyous part of worship. The Bible talks about both being necessary for worship. Reverence and joy. What if we are a people that have the truth down, firmly grounded in our minds, but we lack grace? We fall short of the mark because Jesus came in grace and truth. What if we're... We're good at guarding the, the good deposit entrusted to us, but we're really bad at the Great Commission. We're good at guarding the good deposit, but we're bad at sharing that deposit. What if we're sound in our understanding of Christ, but weak in our experience of Christ? No one is beyond such a diagnosis. Too often Christianity becomes a game of theology. Or a game of social benefit. Too often our fellowship with one another doesn't, doesn't even touch or address our hearts. Doesn't even touch or address our our walk with Christ. Too often do we gather on Sunday mornings with little joy in our hearts and little desire to experience Christ. Too often do we gather together for Bible study to know a lot more about Christianity but not experience the Lord of heaven and earth. Paul writes in verse 10, he says, I'm not content with that. Yes, I know about Christ. Yes, I do ministry for Christ. I'll even write New Testament letters on behalf of Christ. But what I want, my chief longing in life, is to know more of Christ. I want to experience my Lord and Savior. You see, for Paul, he knows Jesus is alive. He knows that if he's living, he must also be relatable. And he knows that this living Lord and this living Savior will meet with me in prayer. 
And He will meet with me through the Scriptures. And He will meet with me in healthy Christian fellowship. His great heartbeat is to reorient His entire life so that He might keep drinking in more of the fountain of Jesus. The Lord for him isn't just a concept. He's not a realm of academic study. He's a person. A person to be known. A person to be experienced. You see, a few years ago, there was uh, something in our Southern Baptist Convention called the Conservative Resurgence, but there was a greater, a greater movement kind of in evangelical Christianity as a whole. It took place really at the end uh, throughout the 70s, definitely in the 80s and, and early 90s. But it, it was by and large a battle for inerrancy. A battle to affirm that the Bible was the Word of God without error. And at that same time, there was also um, movements in the opposite direction that elevated um, new revelation through what I would deem an abuse of spiritual gifts, people who taught and believed and thought that God was speaking outside of His Word to them personally that was just as binding as Scripture itself. And so to fight against that, to avoid that, to counteract that, conservative evangelicals in Christianity divided the two ways of thinking between subjective revelation or subjective experience and objective Christian faith. And what they did was they said, we can only look at objective Christianity through the objective verifiable Scriptures, which is true. And they did that to combat against subjective feeling, which is unverifiable. The problem is, we are people who run to the extreme. And in an attempt, a right attempt, to avoid subjective, unverifiable, quote-unquote, leading of the Spirit that's contrary to Scripture, we did away with subjectivity altogether. And so the only measurement in a person's life became the objective Scriptures. Which, if I'm going to lean anyway, it's going to be that way. But truth be told, Christianity has a very real and serious subjective element to it. It is very much so experiential. God wrought new birth in our hearts that's experience. We encounter Christ in conversion. That's experience. God indwells us with His Spirit. That's experience. He convicts us. He leads us. He guides us. He plants Scripture in our minds when we don't know what to say. He helps us to pray. He helps make decisions. He dictates our every step. Christianity isn't just a thinking faith, though it is that. It is also an experiential faith. We are to have, church, a very personal, intimate, honest, real, experienced relationship with Christ Himself. And if we neglect it, 
if we neglect it and suffice just for knowledge or suffice just with understanding, then we have not yet experienced the greatest joys of salvation. Paul's desire in verse 10 is to know Jesus, not just know more about Him, to know Him constantly, consistently, unwaveringly, to be filled up over and over and over. As infinite as Christ is, is as infinite as His desire is to know Jesus. To commune with Him each and every day in prayer, in the Scriptures, in submission to the Spirit. I'm I'm really going to do us a severe injustice this morning and not finish verse 10 and 11 because he tells us two primary ways he, he longs to know Christ. I'll just go ahead and give them to you real quick. He wants to know Christ first by the experience of the power of His resurrection. And then by the experience of suffering. The power of His resurrection isn't a focus on the end resurrection. That comes in verse 11. Verse 10 is a past, uh, backwards looking resurrection. It's the, it's the resurrection of Christ. Verse 10 is the resurrection of Paul. It's a future end of time resurrection. Personal bodily resurrection. Theologically speaking, those two things could, could never be divorced. They, they must go together. But contextually speaking, Paul is talking about two different things though he's using the same words. The emphasis in verse 10 isn't so much on the resurrection of the Lord as it is on the power of that resurrection. The very power that will cause Paul in verse 11 to be resurrected from the dead in the end, but the emphasis in verse 10 is the the power. I want to know Christ, know Him experientially by knowing the power of His resurrection experientially. Now on one hand, you do as a Christian because you've been saved. The very same power that raised Christ from the dead physically is the same power that raises your soul from the dead spiritually. The God who gives life is the God who gives life. And He imparts it physically and spiritually. Now, for us, it's spiritually. But one day, it will be physically also. But in another sense, God doesn't just pour out that life-giving power on us at the moment of conversion, at the moment of salvation. It's also an enabling power that God gives to us each and every day. To be led by Him. To know and understand Him. To serve Him. To submit to Him. It's the very same resurrection power that enables you to walk with Christ each and every day. Why do you think you haven't gone the way of the world by now? It's because God in His power has kept you and enabled you to stay with Christ. Secondly, I want to, Paul says, I want to share in his sufferings. This isn't 
atonement-like sufferings, even though he refers to his death at the very next phrase. It's, it's not the atonement kind of sufferings that he's referring to, as if uh, Jesus' sufferings on the cross were lacking and Paul needs to just make up for them, or that he just needs to help Christ bear the load. Like There's a lot to deal with Jesus when you suffer for it, so, so let me carry a little bit of that burden. That's not at all what Paul's saying. Rather, he means to identify with the sufferings that happen because of Christ. Because of belonging to Christ. Now, there's really three ways you can identify suffering. I would just want to mention two this morning very, very quickly. The third one I won't mention pertains to just living in a fallen creation. There are sufferings that happen to us. Not sufferings that are propagated onto us. That's the distinction I'm making. But there are also sufferings that are, that are pushed onto us. And let's divide those into two categories. Natural and manufactured. There is natural suffering when you become a Christian. You see, to know Christ is to know the power of His resurrection. To know Christ is also to know suffering for Christ. The Scriptures tell us quite clearly, Christians will suffer. You will be persecuted for belonging to Jesus. Martin Luther once said, they gave our Lord a crown of thorns. Why do we ever think they would give us a crown of roses? The Lord said, the world hates me and it will hate those who follow me. Suffering is real. But natural suffering, let me divide these two again. Natural suffering, manufactured suffering. Natural suffering is what happens at conversion. It's when the old flesh is put off and the new flesh is put on. That, as we've said, is never easy and never painless. That's why in verse 8 Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things. Not that it wasn't worth it to lose all things. It was more than worth it. But I still suffered it because it wasn't easy. It was painful. It was hard. The Bible talks about putting off the old self in terms of self-denial and self-sacrifice and bearing a burden and carrying your cross. And Paul to the Galatians even says, crucifying my flesh. That because, that's because putting off the old flesh requires certain sacrifices. Sometimes, you may lose a reputation you may lose opportunity. You have to give up your hobbies. You have to give up your friends. You may even have to give up your family to be faithful to Christ. Those are the natural sufferings that happen because we're saved. That every Christian will have to endure. Killing your old flesh isn't easy because the rascal fights back. There's also manufactured suffering. Suffering that comes our way because the world hates our God. And since the world hates our God, He hates all that belongs to God, including you and I. It hates us because it loves its sin. And light and darkness will never have fellowship together. The darkness will always, always hate the light. We might call natural suffering internal. Manufactured suffering, created suffering, is external. And it is put on us through things like social isolation, loss of opportunity or advancement at work, loss of, loss of friends, 
outright mockery, ridicule, even persecution. And yes, we know because of too many brothers and sisters, even death. You think that's you think that's far removed from us? It's not. There are people in our church family who gave up their families to follow Christ. And you may not know that, but I do. They're despised by their families. Family won't even take their phone calls anymore. That's manufactured suffering. And Paul says, I'm willing to pay that price. I'm willing to pay it ten times over if it gets me Christ. Because in suffering, I identify with Him. And he says in this verse, becoming like Him in His death. The emphasis there is on is on being like Him. It's not on His death. I'll suffer if it makes me like Jesus so that I can have more of Jesus. What was Christ like at His death? He was faithful. He was righteous. Obedient and pleasing and honoring to God. If suffering takes that, if it takes that, For me to be those things, then so be it. Because at the end, I want to be found faithful. I want to be found righteous in God. I want to be found obedient and pleasing and honoring to God. Romans 5, Paul tells us suffering produces character. Ultimately, suffering produces godliness. And so if it takes suffering to be found at the end of my life like Christ was found in His death, so be it. Whatever the cost, so that I may have full, eternal fellowship with Christ. That I may have Christ now. That I may have Christ forever. That I may experience Christ today in this moment. That I may experience Christ a hundred thousand years from now. I will live by the power of His resurrection that incures persecution because it gets me Jesus. Why do you think suffering helps him identify with Christ more? Why do you think suffering is something that would enhance his personal experience of Jesus? There's a number of reasons. In suffering for Christ's name, you understand Christ's commitment and Christ's love to you because He endured a whole lot more than you do. In suffering, you get to experience what Paul called in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the God of all comfort. When I thought I'd received the death sentence, he said, when I hated life itself, God comforted me. Suffering is a powerful tool of God. It, it shows us what peace is like. It shows us what protection is like. Without suffering, we don't know the peace and protection of God like we might. It's even a tool of sanctification for God, a tool of perfection that even our Savior Himself was subjected to. Hebrews chapter 10, chapter 2, verse 10. God made Him perfect through suffering. As a whole other sermon, it's not that He wasn't perfect before, but regardless. Suffering is so unpopular, and yet for the Christian, enormously beneficial. 
It not only identifies us with Christ, it draws Christ near. And for the Christian, the heartbeat is not just to know about Jesus, but to know the nearness of Jesus, the presence of Christ, the warmth of His embrace. And by the immeasurable riches of God's grace and mercy, we can know that now. You don't have to wait to heaven, brother or sister. To feel the warmth embrace of Christ. I promise if you're faithful, you'll suffer. And if you suffer, you'll know the warmth embrace of Christ. Christ loves us so much that He identifies with our suffering because when He met this man on the Damascus Road, He says, why are you persecuting me? I'm not saying we should be masochists and go out seeking suffering. If that's what you take from this, you've got some problems we can visit later. The issue I'm saying is faithfulness, walking in the power of the resurrection of Christ every day will lead to suffering in some form or fashion. And if you embrace that suffering for the sake of Christ, you will know Christ intimately. Because our God loves us and He'll never leave nor forsake us. Oh, very quickly, I, I keep saying that, but here we are. Verse 11. I want to know Him, Paul says. I want to know Him through, a, through the daily enabling, the daily fusing of His power coursing through my spiritual veins. I want to know Him even if that means suffering so that I can be intimate and near to Him. So that, verse 11, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This is such tricky, tricky wording. It doesn't mean what it seems to mean. And the, don't you like it when a teacher says that? When Paul says any means possible, he doesn't mean that there are more than there's more than one way to be with Christ. Just like when he says the word attain, uses the word attain, he doesn't mean earn or or inherit or get, personally get. Due to time, let me just summarize as quickly as I can. He means whatever it takes, whatever the cost, to have Christ both now and forever, I'm willing to pay it. And you know what? He did. We know this man's life. We know how it ended. It ended with his head being separated from his body because he was faithful to preach Christ and uncompromising in his devotion to Jesus. Something about this man encountering Jesus, something about Jesus clicked in Paul's heart where the Lord became so much more valuable than even his own earthly life. Whatever the price, to know Christ now and for all eternity. I'll pay it. Take away my livelihood. Take away my reputation. Take away my access to things, my opportunities, my friends, my family, even my head from my body. I'll pay it. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. challenging thought because not many of us live there every day. 
Not many of us live there every day because either one, we're not Christians. We don't know the treasure and value of Christ. Or because we get caught up in all these other things that might be good things. We get caught up in them to the neglect of experiencing Christ Himself. The good news for either one of us, unbeliever or those who neglect, is that God is a merciful God. And today, at least, repentance is available. Which means salvation is available. Which means forgiveness is available. When our God says, all you must do is come to me, turn like we read in Nehemiah 9, turn to me and come to me and again I'll be gracious. Since I've gone over time this morning, I'm going to ask the band just to come lead us in one song of response. Before we do, I want you to really think about your response to the Lord. Let me pray and then we'll worship God. And I'll be standing in the back. If there's anything you want to visit about, you come meet with me. Father in heaven, sometimes we want to be righteous for the sake of others because we want to be well thought of, we want to be liked, we want to be spiritually respected or respectable. And sometimes we open Your Word just to know a lot of truths, just to know a lot of information. Let us not forget that You died so that we may know You. Not just about You, but to know You. That You make us righteous, not just to be well thought of by other Christians, but so that we might seamlessly, joyfully, and fully walk with You. Lord, reorient our hearts. Reprioritize our minds. Be the very center of our existence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.